Well, um, here we are again, uh, visiting this story that Matthew tells, and it's a story, again, from Matthew's own personal experience. I want you to bear in mind here that Matthew was among the disciples who experienced this very thing. Matthew was telling the story firsthand. He was there when it happened. So that gives us fresh perspective and understanding on the nature of what's taking place in this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Now, let me just quickly here, by way of review, before we get to this story, emphasize why we're digging in for the season of Lent, this um, season of 40 days leading up to our annual commemoration of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Why are we digging into Matthew 16? Well, I shared this last week, and I want to just briefly revisit the notion that, that Matthew 16 is really critical passage about the journey of Jesus toward the cross. And uh, in fact, I think it's probably one of the most important chapters in the Gospels with regard to what Jesus teaches his disciples as he begins to journey toward the cross in Jerusalem. And we're going to get to the heart of Matthew 16 next Sunday in the, the story that takes place after the one we're looking at here today. So let that hopefully um, be a, a prelude and a preview uh, that might draw you back for more. Um, so here we are. We're digging into this chapter because it's really about the mission of the church and the purpose of discipleship. That's where the story is leading. And what we're reading here in these first 12 verses is a preview to that. It's an introduction to that. In fact, in one way, I'd say it's a study in contrasts. Because what you're going to see represented here in this story is a bad example, the example of the Pharisees and Sadducees, contrasted with the good uh, example that Jesus wants to, to draw his disciples into. So I've been pondering for some time now um, the mission of the church. Obviously, being a church planter and a pastor, starting this church uh, 18 years ago now, um, I've thought uh, for a good long time about what the church is meant to do and be. What is our fundamental mission? What's our purpose? How How do we fulfill God's desire for us? through our involvement in a local community of faith like this. And uh, you'll recall, some of you, that I've actually preached from Matthew 16 a number of times over the years, but I've never actually done a series on it. Uh, I've visited this passage a few times here and there, uh, taught specifically on the story of Peter's confession of Christ, which is the story we're coming to next week. Uh, But I really felt it would be helpful to us, as we think about this, to press in a little deeper and to spend six weeks or so really studying this passage together at a deeper level. So with that, let's turn back then to this story from the first 12 verses. And specifically, I want to pick up where we left off last Sunday at verses 5 and 6. Here's where the story continues from uh, the first four verses, which I taught on last week. Matthew 16, 5 and 6, when they went across the lake... The disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
So here's where we need to start as we think about the significance of this story and what it is that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. I want you to recognize with me that yeast is a common biblical symbol used to represent the spreading of a negative influence. Yeast is a common biblical symbol used to represent the spreading of a negative influence. So I think the, the best place to begin as we consider this warning that Jesus is giving to his disciples is to consider the kind of warning it is. What's he warning them about? What is it that yeast symbolizes? How is it that yeast actually works? What should be avoided if we're to follow Jesus' advice here? Now, uh, from the outset, I think it's okay to chuckle a little bit when you read a silly story like this. And I mean that in the best possible way. I'm not being critical or um, you know, trying to make fun of the Bible. I think this is a hilarious story. In fact, a few of you, I'm glad, uh, laughed just a bit even as I read the story. And it's comical specifically because of the disciples' failure to understand what Jesus is talking about. I don't know about you, but I mean, I think, I like to imagine, I just let my imagination run away sometimes, and, and I like to imagine that, that up there in heaven, the other disciples are, are still ragging on Matthew for the way that he wrote this story up. Because it makes them look really bad, right? I mean, think about this. Matthew didn't have to tell us the whole story just how he did, right? He could have made the disciples look good instead of looking like kind of foolish and, and slow and stupid, right? But no, the beauty of the story, the power of the story, and the humor of the story is that Matthew is completely honest and forthcoming about the failure of the disciples to understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus, coincidentally, I think the timing is kind of funny too. I think Jesus had a way of doing things like this. Uh, you know, just brilliant uh, in everything that he did. So Jesus, you know, they're talking about uh, the fact that they've forgotten to bring lunch. Here they are on a boat trip across the lake, across the Sea of Galilee, and nobody remembered to pack bread. So there's nothing to eat. And they're reflecting on their hunger, and they're reflecting on their mistake. Where, you, you know, you were supposed to bring the bread. How come, you know, where is it? Who, you know, what went wrong here? And then Jesus, with this impeccable timing, says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And of course, that comment then sets in motion this whole um, humorous interaction. I'd love to see a Christian comedian like Tim Hawkins or somebody do a bit on this story. It'd be hilarious, right? Because the disciples are like, wait a minute, what? Uh, is he talking to us about forgetting to bring bread? They, they just don't get it. They, they can't comprehend what Jesus is saying to them because they think it has to do with the fact that they've forgotten lunch. And again, what I love about this is that Matthew is so honest about the shortcomings of the disciples on this occasion. You know, like, think of it this way. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of our God endures forever. 
And so you can, you can imagine the disciples saying to Matthew, dude, did, don't you remember the word of God abides forever, endures forever. So now we're eternally reflected as these like foolish dudes that never understood what Jesus was talking about. Did you really have to write it that way? If it was me, I would have been thinking, how could I tell this story without making myself look like such a loser? But Matthew includes himself among the disciples who really failed to comprehend what Jesus was talking about. Instead of making himself look like a hero, a spiritual superhero, Matthew takes his lumps right along with everybody else. Matthew embraces his foolishness. He embraces and freely admits his shortcomings on this occasion. And what I love about that is that it speaks precisely to what Jesus is talking about in the story. Because you see, what Jesus is talking about is the problem of acting religious. What Matthew is demonstrating in the way that he tells the story is that he took Jesus' advice. He didn't give in to the temptation to become like the Pharisees and Sadducees. He didn't get lured in by the yeast of their teaching and their hypocrisy. He resisted it. And the way that he tells this story is the evidence that he resisted it. Because it's genuine through and through. It's humble. It's honest. Isn't that cool? So these guys, these disciples, weren't a bunch of spiritual superheroes like we make, make them out to be sometimes. They're just a bunch of ordinary guys like us. A little slow on the uptake sometimes. You ever feel that way? Anyone? I do. Somehow, this honest picture of the disciples actually lends credibility to the story in a surprising sort of way. It actually makes us feel better about our own shortcomings. I mean, good, good grief. If the disciples could be that, that slow and foolish, then you know, doesn't that make you feel a little bit better about your own shortcomings? So all this is to say that the story here has nothing to do with the bread that the disciples forgot to pack for lunch. Jesus is speaking symbolically. And the disciples, at first, don't get it. They don't understand what he's talking about. Now, what is he talking about? Well, Jesus chooses here on this occasion to use a symbol uh, an everyday substance that all of the disciples would have been very familiar with, and I expect most of you are familiar with it as well, it's the substance of yeast. Yeast, what is it? Or leaven is another word for it. And, of course, Jesus understood, wanted the disciples to understand what he meant by that symbol. So this is another of Jesus' many illustrations. He talked like this often using things from everyday life as illustrations to help explain what he was teaching his disciples. So let me just take a moment on this to make sure that the relevance of this particular symbol is perfectly clear to everyone. Um, I expect most of you understand it, but, but let's just talk for a quick moment about making bread and how that works. 
Now, in the Middle East, obviously, they commonly make flatbread that doesn't require yeast. But if you want to make a loaf of bread and you want it to actually rise and become a loaf of leavened bread, there's one key ingredient. I mean, obviously, there's several ingredients. You've got to have the flour. You've got to have the water. You've got to have a few other things. But the main thing, of course, that makes the bread rise is yeast or leaven. So how does it work? I actually thought about trying to set up a table and getting the ingredients and like putting on my Swedish chef hat and, you know, like doing the, doing the mixing right here in front of you just for fun. And then I decided not to. But, um, but you can imagine that if you want. Let your imagination run wild. Picture me up here with the Swedish, uh, I love the Swedish chef. He's my favorite Muppets character. Um, just uh, picture, picture that, right? And it comes to the last ingredient, the yeast. You pour the yeast in the water to dissolve it, and then you mix all the other ingredients in with the water and the yeast, and then you have to let it sit for a while so that the dough can actually rise before you bake it. And while it's sitting, the whole point here of the analogy is that the yeast spreads throughout the dough. That's how it works. You get a tiny little bit of yeast. Not very, it doesn't take very much. The packets are small. You might have a big ball of dough and a tiny little bit of yeast, but when you mix the yeast into the dough, it spreads throughout the dough so that the dough can rise and the bread can turn out properly. So think about the spreading of the yeast and you get to the heart of this symbol, the heart of this analogy. That's what Jesus is referring to here. But he's specifically referring to the spreading of a negative influence. Now, let me give you a couple of examples here of how this symbol is used quite commonly in the New Testament. I'll give you two other examples besides uh, the one that we're looking at here in Matthew 16. And there are, of course, parallel passages in the Gospels of Mark and Luke as well. Uh, But another one is mentioned by Paul. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, I could probably do a whole sermon just on that reference alone because Paul's talking about the meaning of Passover and the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which had been observed by the Jewish people for, you know, um, hundreds, thousands of years and are still observed by the Jewish people today, and they have great spiritual significance and symbolic significance. But really, the point is just to draw your attention to the fact that Paul uses this symbol, the same symbol that Jesus used, and he uses it in the same way to describe the negative influence that can spread if you're not careful, the negative influence of any particular behavior that's not right or godly. Again, in Galatians 5, 7 to 10, Paul uses the same symbol, the same analogy. This time he's talking about the Judaizers, the, um, the, the traditionalists, the legalists in Galatia, and he's confronting them about their demand that Gentile converts to Christianity have to observe all the requirements of the Jewish law. And he's basically saying, no, that's not right. Now, he's a little more um, 
uh, a little more forceful about the way that he says it. And you can you know, review uh, the letter of Galatians if you want to refre refresh your memory on how Paul confronts that problem. But here in chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, just listen to the use of this same analogy again. He says, you were running a good race. He's talking to the Galatians. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the, the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And then he quotes Jesus. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. So in both these references, without getting too down into the details of what Paul's talking about, he's referring to the symbol of yeast. And he's using it really in the same way that Jesus did. Beware of the negative influence of behaviors that are not godly and how they can spread to affect others. So you kn I hope you'll notice the similarity between the descriptions of yeast in those two reference, uh, references from Paul and how they connect back with Jesus' words in Matthew 16. The point, again, is simply that a little yeast can spread to influence a whole batch of dough. So this image tells us that something, um, something negative is spreading from the example of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus is concerned about that. He's warning his disciples, don't let it spread to you. Don't let it influence you. Don't follow their bad example. So that brings us then to the actual focus of the Pharisees' teaching. What kind of teaching was it? What, what exactly was Jesus referring to in their behavior? What kind of negative influence specifically was he warning his disciples to avoid? Well, here's the way I'd sum it up, at least on the basis of Matthew 16. The negative influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees was both their false teaching and their hypocrisy. So two things in specific that are identified both by Matthew and as well by Luke, which we'll turn to in just a moment, as they describe this story and the meaning of what Jesus is talking about. The negative influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees was both their false teaching and their hypocrisy. So here's where we get really to the heart of why this lesson was so important for Jesus and why he wanted to make sure that his disciples really understood what he meant. That's why he was a little annoyed, a little aggravated that they weren't catching on, that they didn't understand what he was talking about. Now, as I mentioned last week, when we looked at the first four verses of Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees were Jesus' main protagonists throughout the Gospels. You read the Gospel accounts and they come up again and again and again and again. And it's never or rarely in a positive light, right? They're, they're constantly in Jesus, standing in Jesus' way. They're constantly criticizing what he does and what he says. They're constantly standing against him, so much so that they're actually constantly trying to get him killed. And eventually, it's fair to say they succeed in getting him killed. 
Now, of course, we understand that that was God's will and that it was all part of God's mission and purpose for the life of Jesus. But don't forget that it wasn't just the Romans that had Jesus put to death. It was with the consent and by the design of the Jewish religious leaders that Jesus was crucified. So they were constantly opposing him. And ultimately, we could say they were just as responsible for his death as the Romans were. But, but notice this. Isn't it interesting that the Gospels talk a lot more about Jesus' confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders than they do about his confrontations with the Romans and the Roman Empire? Isn't that interesting? It's surprising. It's shocking, right? And this is part of the backstory. This is part of the problem. This is why the Pharisees and Sadducees had such a hard time accepting Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one that God was to send. They were expecting a Messiah. They were watching. They were waiting for one. The problem was with their mindset, with their expectation. They expected the Messiah to oppose the Romans. In fact, to overthrow the Romans. They expected the Messiah to be a great king, a great warrior king, who would overthrow the Roman Empire and restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for and waiting for. So when Jesus shows up and start, starts criticizing them and confronting them instead of the Romans, they're like, what's he talking about? We're not the problem, the Romans are. How can, why is he coming against us? What, what, what's going on with this guy? He's crazy. He must be demonized. They didn't get it. They couldn't get it because Jesus was confronting them instead of the Romans. And it's rather ironic, if you stop to think about it, that the, the people that Jesus had the most trouble with were not the ungodly heathens of the world. It was the, it was the religious leaders those were the ones that he was constantly battling. Incredibly ironic, isn't it? And Jesus, we have to understand, was opposing them for good reason. Good reason. Let me explain. Matthew 16, 11 and 12. Notice how Jesus defines the yeast of the Pharisees. He says to his disciples, how is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then, Matthew says, they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we could say, in general, yeast symbolizes the spreading of a negative influence. But in this particular case, Matthew's putting his finger on something more specific than that. He's telling us that Jesus was referring to the spreading negative influence of the Pharisees' teaching, specifically, or their doctrine. So verse 12 gives us the first interpretation, specific interpretation of the symbol that Jesus is using. Yeast equals false teaching. Yeast equals false teaching. What was false about their teaching? 
Well, in a nutshell, the Jewish religious leaders were so devoted to observing the old covenant of the law that they couldn't grasp the revelation of a new and greater covenant that was being revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus. They were stuck in the old way of thinking, the old way of doing things, so much so that they couldn't see that God was changing everything. Both groups were into religious legalism by observance of the Mosaic law, and they earnestly believed and taught others that that you could become righteous in God's sight just by following a certain set of rules and traditions. So they were all about the rules and traditions. In fact, it wasn't just about following God's law itself, but following all the interpretations and traditions that had developed out of the law. And they had a nice long list of about 600 or so things that they were obliged to observe. And this is what they taught others. Their teaching essentially communicated to those watching and listening, never mind this Jesus character, just follow the law and you'll earn God's favor. Just follow the rules and everything will work out for you. Just do the right thing and you'll be fine. Oh, and by the way, together with that was the implicit message, if you don't do the right thing, Shame on you. We're better than you are because we are doing the right thing. And so not only was there a focus on legalism, but there was also a focus on judgment toward those who didn't measure up to the standard that the Pharisees and Sadducees believed in. So this is Matthew's quick take on the meaning of the symbol of yeast. It's about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the doctrine that they held on to, and the way that it, um, that it prevented them from receiving Jesus, receiving the teaching of Jesus and the revelation of who Jesus was and what he'd come to do. But now, I want to add to that a second piece of the puzzle here that comes to us from the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke, in the same story, the same description of this story, gives us a little different understanding of what yeast represents. And it's really important that we grab hold of this, particularly relevant in our own day and age, as I'll explain shortly. So if you look with me at Luke 12, verse 1, which is the parallel account of this story in the Gospel of Luke, you'll notice that Luke tells us that Jesus was really warning his disciples about the notion that yeast equals hypocrisy. Yeast equals hypocrisy. That's the the meaning of the symbol from Luke's vantage point. So Luke 12, verse 1, we read, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Now, I imagine most of us know what that word means as well, but just to be clear again, it's an adjective taken from the Greek word. It's almost a literal transliteration. Hypocrite is the way that we say it in English, which is a noun literally meaning 
actor. Actor. In Greek, in the Greek world, if you were a hypocrite, you were an actor or an actress. So this word is stolen from the realm of theater. But it's applied by Jesus to talk about the problem of religious actors. Hypocrisy, then, is essentially acting religious and righteous without really being at the core all that you're acting like on the outside. It's like a religious show by which the actor looks and plays a part, but they're really just pretending. What this means, my friends, is that, that religious hypocrites, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, are not really what they appear to be. They're not really as holy and righteous as they want to present themselves. They're pretending to be more righteous than they really are on the inside. So with this thought in mind, and Jesus references this problem several times, with this thought in mind, listen to a couple examples of how Jesus speaks against the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Matthew 15, 6 to 9, he says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Then <clears throat> Matthew 23, I mean, you could really reference the entire chapter. It's a rebuke of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And just to give you a quick glimpse, he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And then Jesus goes on to give seven rebukes of the Pharisees. For example, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Whoa, that's a pretty harsh rebuke. I mean, if you, if you stop and think about it, really Matthew 23 is perhaps the, the harshest language that Jesus ever used on the face of the earth, and it was all directed toward the religious leaders of his day. They thought they had it all right, but in fact, they got it all wrong. They wanted to look clean and righteous on the outside, but on the inside, their hearts were still impure. They still needed grace and forgiveness, but they didn't know it. So the fact was that they were not nearly as righteous and holy as they wanted to appear. But their sense of self-righteousness blinded them from seeing their own need for the grace and salvation that Jesus had come to offer. That's the yeast that Jesus is warning about. So let me finish up then with a, just a practical application of, of all this. The moral of the story is it applies to us, right? Every good story has got to have a moral. What's the moral of this story for us here and now? 
to grow in right relationship with God, we have to avoid spreading the negative influence of those who merely act religious. And what I mean by that is really two, twofold, right? You have to avoid receiving that influence so that it changes your own attitude and behavior. And you have to avoid spreading it then to others as well. What Jesus is calling for from his disciples is genuineness, humility. He's calling for followers who will recognize their own need for the grace that Jesus offers. So this is not about self-righteousness. This is about understanding that righteousness is only a gift from God through faith in Christ. That's where the Pharisees fell short. In fact, what I want you to recognize and ponder over the coming weeks as we press into Matthew 16 is how this story sets up the next one that we're going to read. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Matthew 16 is a study in contrast. It begins with the bad example of the Pharisees and a warning about what not to do. And then it leads to an explanation and instruction by Jesus of what he's really looking for from his disciples and from the church. And these are not just stories, bear in mind, about the first disciples of Jesus. These stories are still instructive for us today. So when you read something like this, you can't just think, well, isn't that interesting? You know, it's, it's an interesting historical insight into what happened between Jesus and his first disciples. Yes, that's true, but more than that, the question to ask as you read a story is like, like this is, what does it say to me? God, what do you want me to understand about the danger of false teaching and hypocrisy? How do you want me to avoid those things? The yeast of, of those things impacting my own life. So the warning of Jesus here is still relevant for us. And he would still say to us, just as he said to them, be on your guard. Be on your guard against the yeast of false teaching and religious hypocrisy. Don't let it affect you. Beware of the trap of self-righteousness and legalism. Watch out for any form of religion that lacks a continual need for the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, sadly, the religious leaders that Jesus was confronting were the epitome of having a form of religion and godliness that lacked the true power of God. Dave spoke about power earlier. There's a great warning for us, to those living in the last days, that comes from Paul, written to Timothy. And I think it's directly relevant to what Jesus taught in Matthew 16. Listen to these words. Paul says, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if we just stopped right there, you'd think, wouldn't you? Paul's warning Timothy about the ungodly. 
the heathens of the world, the people without Christ, without God, without any semblance of religion. But then he says this in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. Paul's saying, beware. It's really the same warning that Jesus gave to his first disciples, but Paul's giving it to us, those who would be alive in the last days. He's saying, beware, beware of people who have a form of godliness, but they're really not godly. A form of religion, but lacking the power of God. So this warning isn't just about the world around us. It's really about those who present a form of godliness but, de but deny the true power of God. It's a warning about modern-day hypocrites, actors, those who represent the pharisaical mindset in our own day and age. It's about those who really love pleasure more than they love God but still try to act godly and put on a good show. Like Jesus, Paul says, these are not the kind of people that we should want to be influenced by or that we should want to be ourselves. Have you ever known a friend or an acquaintance even that you might describe as a poser, a Christian poser? Here's an example in a blog entry from a young college student named Courtney. She writes, this acquaintance of mine says he's a Christian, but the real question is, is he actually a Christian? This person is a liar, a manipulator, a user, and a BSer. And I'm not just saying this to say it. He's actually admitted it to me, that he's a good BSer and liar. He knows how to get what he wants from other people. He's led people on, me included, about his feelings toward them. He puts on this act that he's strong, good-looking, sensitive, and, has, and that he's kind, that he's Christian. But in reality, he's two-faced. He knows all the right things to say until he gets what he wants. What I don't think he knows, though, is that this little game isn't a game that God appreciates. That's her description of a friend who's posing as a Christian. So the real issue <clears throat> is that the hypocrisy of people like that reflects very poorly on Christ and on the church, doesn't it? And this is a significant problem for us to think about and to work at overcoming. You know what the biggest hindrance is to our ability to reach the culture around us? I'd say it's the perception that most Christians are hypocrites. I don't know that that perception is always true or accurate, but it's the perception that many people in the world have toward us. There was a recent survey done by the Barna Group 
and they wrote up an article entitled, What Millennials Want When They Visit a Church. Here's one of the conclusions that they came to through this survey that was described in the article. Quote, taken together, a significant number of young adults perceive a lack of relational generosity within the U.S. Christian community. Perhaps most concerning are the two-thirds of millennials who believe that American churchgoers are a lot or somewhat hypocritical. You know how many people have that general impression of us? 66%. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of people in the world, particularly in the, in the millennial generation, have the perception that Christians are generally hypocritical, pharisaical. To a generation that prides itself on the ability to smell a fake at 10 paces, hypocrisy is a worrisome indictment. In other words, this hugely affects our ability to reach people with the gospel because their perception of us whether it's true or not, is that we are acting more religious than we really are. So whether we think we're hypocritical or not is not the point. This is how the world perceives us. And I think that's exactly why Jesus was warning so firmly to avoid the yeast of false teaching and hypocrisy. The answer is not to withdraw from all public displays of faith for fear of being accused of hypocrisy. But the answer is that we have to be genuine. We have to be humble. We have to have integrity. And perhaps most of all, we have to be caring and compassionate, not judgmental toward the world around us. Because judgment and hypocrisy seem to go hand in hand. And if you think of the example of the Pharisees, I think that's precisely what Jesus was critiquing. It wasn't just that they were acting more religious than they really were. It was that they were judging others on the basis of what they thought about themselves compared to others. So my suspicion is that what people often identify as hypocrisy is really often expressed to them as judgmentalism. That's the heart of the problem that we're working to overcome. When people feel judged, they tend to look at those judging them and find any apparent fault that they can so that they can flip the judgment right back around toward those that gave it in the first place. So if we're going to be effective at joining the mission of Jesus, if we're going to be effective as disciples of Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, we have to find a way to avoid the yeast of false teaching and hypocrisy. So even way back then, 2,000 years ago, I think Jesus was on some, onto something really important for us. And the failure of the Jewish religious leaders described back in Matthew 16 gives us a sharp contrast to the genuine life of love for God and faith in Christ that we're meant to be living out. That's where the story is headed over the weeks to come as we press on into Matthew 16.
Let's pray.